0: I had, you know, angel investment offers from huge angels I would love to put in press release. And I didn't think they were gonna add any value to my business. And so I didn't take their money. And that was my choice. You know, I believe that you should look at investors like a marriage without divorce. You are literally in bed with them all the way through building this company until you sell. And so be ready for that.
1: Welcome back to the Power Done Differently podcast. I'm Cassandra Ray, and if, like me, you've grown a little disappointed and disillusioned with the people in power, you're in the right place. In this podcast, you'll meet powerful, passionate women from around the world who are doing power differently. Joining me today is Divya Gugani, co-founder and CEO of Wonder Beauty and founding partner of the venture capital fund Concept2Co. Launched in 2015, Wonder Beauty is an emerging beauty brand offering fewer, faster, and cleaner products for women on the go. Founded out of Divya's own pain points as a working mom having to balance a demanding, travel-heavy career while also dealing with the same autoimmune disease that I suffer from, Wander has over 12 highly prestigious beauty awards under their belt, including three Allure Best in Beauty, plus a loyal following of A-list celebrities such as Heidi Klum, Emma Roberts, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Molly Sims. You might also know Divya from her time presenting Weekend Today on NBC, or as the author of the book, Sexy Women Eat, How to Love Food and Look Fabulous. Don't we love her already? Divya, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I have read that your childhood dream was to become a lawyer and move to the suburbs. Can you take us on the journey that must have happened to go from dreaming of becoming a suburban lawyer to a serial entrepreneur and investor?
0: You know, you make plans and then life happens. And that's pretty much what has happened to me my entire life. So when I was growing up, you know, a lot of people say that they are shaped by the role models around them. And to be quite frank with you, I kind of had a lack of role models Um, my parents both came here from India. My dad came here for school. He then, you know, worked for the government and ended up becoming an entrepreneur. And I actually, that was the reason I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I felt like he lived life to the max. He, you know, the eighties were the years of excess. Um, there was a lot of excess happening all the time in my household. Um, and also the life of an entrepreneur was, you know, boom and bust, it was highs, it was lows, it was nothing steady, it was nothing stable. And I grew up like that. And I think that as I grew older and I had a chance to kind of shape my own destiny, all I wanted was stability. All I wanted was a house in the suburbs with white picket fence and you know, a steady job with a paycheck. I didn't want boom, I didn't want bust, I didn't want up, I didn't want down. And What's really funny is that, you know, you make all these plans. Like I went to Cornell and I studied and I was like, Oh, I'll take the LSAT and I'll go to law school. And then I just got sidetracked because I took, did an internship in investment banking while I was in college and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I had a great experience. I worked really hard. I was really motivated and passionate about the work. And I got bitten by that kind of business bug. And then I left college and took my first job at Goldman Sachs. And I guess the rest has been history. And that phase of my life, I actually had role models. I had people that I could aspire to be like. I had people I wanted to learn how to negotiate like. I, I saw people with just so much presence and gravitas. and like I saw around me a lot of the bits and pieces of what I wanted to become and mm-hmm. what I would eventually become and as a leader, pieces of that. And I always had a passion for food. And I said, I'm not going to give up this passion. Like I work all day. I need some sort of creative outlet. Some people, you know, are into music and write and paint. And, you know, I cook and that's my, that's my thing.
1: That's amazing. And when did you write the book, Sexy Women Eat? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, pr- I think I wrote the book in
0: 2008 when I was running a company called Behind the Burners. I ran a culinary media business. We had a contract with NBC. I used to be on TV in a short short, short form food show um, called The Weekend Today. And it aired on 14 different local networks across the country. It's so like New York, Boston, Dallas, Texas, like all that, you know, those kind of regional markets. And um, I loved it. I loved running behind the burner. I actually, career highlight of mine was that I was on an international American Express Campaign. So they filmed me Mm. with this incredible director who, by the way, directed like Spike Lee's movies. And he filmed my TV commercial for American Express. And during the Super Bowl, this commercial aired. And, you know, all these big sporting events and all these big moments, like I was in an American Express commercial, which was just crazy and surreal. So it was a big learning lesson. I created a media business and I didn't realize that creating a media business is exactly the opposite of what I wanted. I wanted scalable. Um, month over month, growing revenue. And when you have a media business, you have advertisers and sponsors that write you big checks. And then you wait for the phone to ring for weeks upon weeks. And sometimes it rings and sometimes it doesn't. And so mm. revenue was choppy. We were profitable. We were, um, you know, small, but mighty. And we had a small team, but it just wasn't scaling. And I think I learned a very difficult lesson. is like your revenue model needs to scale. And no matter how passionate you are about the business, the revenue model needs to scale. And so I pivoted. I took the angel money that I had raised for Behind the Burner. And I launched a company called Send the Trend in 2010. I raised venture funding for it in March 2011. And then I sold it in 2012 to, um, to QVC. So it was just a rocket ship success. And had I not pivoted from behind the burner, I would have never had that experience. Mm.
1: I want to kind of stay here for just a minute because I feel like a lot of people who have started a business, particularly about something that they're passionate about, you know, it's not so hard to walk away from something that you did just to make money or something, right? But but you obviously had a deep love for food and it was a cre- your creative outlet and then you started the business around it. What did that process look like of, okay, now is the time? Now is the time. Like I have all of the data I need. You know, what did that what did that actually look like? Were you looking at the data every month and asking yourself, Am I gonna continue with this? Or or did it just come to a head because of certain things? You know, what did that look like to say now is the time I'm I'm gonna move on from this?
0: I think it's a burning desire inside. I really think it's like when you have a business idea and you get into bed at night and you can't fall asleep because you're so consumed about wanting to explore it further and wanting to understand it better and wanting to launch it, that's when you just go do it. Like it it is an ever consuming emotion of wanting to start a business. I can't describe it as any other sort of thing. It's not a rational decision. It's not an emotional decision. It is an entire mind, body consuming decision. When you're Mm. an entrepreneur, you see things others don't see. You take risks that others don't take. And it's a personality. I don't think that you have to be born with it. I certainly was not. I, you know, laugh at my early days. I was this shy, timid person who could not sell you lemonade if I tried. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look at me now. I, I just believe that, you know, some people are born with natural sales skills, some people are not. But the reality is like that's not everything when it comes to being an entrepreneur. Sometimes you learn and develop skills in your career and absorb a lot from different career experiences. And then you go on to become what you're eventually meant to be for me, an entrepreneur. And so I you know, was doing Behind the Burner. I was passionate about it. I love food. I love wine. I love filming. I love the episodes we were putting out. But the revenue wasn't there. The scale wasn't there. And I knew this wasn't going to define me as the entrepreneur I was. And so when I had this idea for Send the Trend and I said, I'm a career woman... I'm not investing in clothes. I'm on a budget. I'm you know, paying myself a very mediocre salary as an early entrepreneur. And I'm updating my look with accessories every season. I'm wearing last month's and last season and last year's outfit, but I'm updating the look with accessories. Like, let me create this accessory subscription business. I just like, I talked to a lot of women. I got the data together and then I just did it. I just went in head first and I did it. And thank God I did. We built a proprietary algorithm for intelligent shopping. We had a real technology differentiation, which I recommend. Um, and we built and sold the company. And it was a it was a wild ride and incredible experience for me.
1: Mm. So do you think it was in in large part to having that idea that you just had an instinct that would really work and serve a gap in the market within the trend? that that was the impetus for you to look at behind the burner and say, this might not be going where I need it to go?
0: hundred percent. And you know, listen, the writing's on the wall. You know, when you get a hundred thousand dollar, you know, contract from a liquor brand, and then you're waiting for them to renew and like they're crickets. It's like, how am I going to keep the lights on, (laughs) pay the rent and pay my team? It's just like, Mm -hmm. you know, you get in these very difficult situations where when you're an entrepreneur, because you're responsible, right? You're responsible for the livelihood of people around you. They are paying their rent and their utilities and subsisting and eating food based on income that you are providing to them as the CEO and as the founder. And so you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders and you have to make sure that you can deliver um, on that responsibility. So I think that you know when things are working out and you know when things are not. Did you take the same team with you? I did. I did. I, I really just had an honest conversation with people and said, Hey, listen, we're going to pivot. This is the pivot. Um, you are totally feel free to be like, this is not for me. I don't want to do this and, you know, not want to do it. Um, or you can say, Hey, listen, I totally want to do this. And this is an exciting new challenge for me. And I was like, you know, some people came along with me. Some people had a real passion for food and said, I don't want to have anything to do with the fashion accessories and no judgment. That was a great decision. I'd rather make that decision at that point than to have people begrudgingly come along for a sense of loyalty and then leave. Um, mm-hmm. So I felt like I left the door open and I said, it's open for you to walk with me and join me. It's also open for you to go explore something else. And I think mm-hmm. having that honest conversation was the best thing I did.
1: Mm. When did you start to invest your own money in other companies? 2000
0: was the First year, I wrote an angel check. So it's been twenty-one years of investing my own money. Um, so
1: well before you actually founded your was that or was yes, that before, well before you founded your I first was an investor. Year. So
0: my career was investment banking, Goldman Sachs. I worked in private equity, so I invested in late-stage businesses that were more mature. I was on the board of different companies, um, and then I went to early-stage investing, which I love and am more passionate about than late-stage investing. And then I started investing my own money in 2000. So I wrote my first angel check in 2000. I have subsequently written over 70. Um, so I've had a lot of experience angel investing and I have my own investment fund called concept where I invest in mostly consumer companies. Um, pretty much pre-seed, seed and series A stage businesses.
1: Wow. Do you feel like... Having been an angel, I mean you know maybe this is not fair because obviously you had also this this perspective uh, already working in private equity but but having invested your own money in other companies, do you think that gave you kind of almost an edge uh, you know learning from other companies that had started absolutely. from the ground up that you'd invested in?
0: Yeah absolutely. I knew that a lot of venture capital and investing is pattern recognition. It's about understanding patterns of what's going to be successful and what's not. What entrepreneurs are going to be successful and not. 90% of the bet in the early stages of investing is a bet on the entrepreneur. It's a bet on the founder. It's a bet on the founding team. It's like, are they uniquely positioned to start this business, grow this business, solve a large market Issue and problem. So like if there's a big market opportunity and there's a real problem there, can this team actually do it? You're betting on the team because that team is going to, you know, investors need to believe in that team and that's how they're going to get money. Our customers need to believe in that team and that's how they're going to get revenue. Um, and everything depends on the team. And if that team is really solid and smart, they will recruit other amazing talent. If the team itself is weak, how are they going to recruit and attract great talent to the organization? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's all a bet on the founding team in the early days. People think it's so much more. And the reality is it boils down to something very simple. The entire bet is on people. Later on, the bet becomes it's like people idea opportunity in the early stages. And then Mm -hmm. later on, it becomes people product distribution. Because Mm -hmm. once you have a lot of revenue, you're really betting on the team. Um, that's there and how they're going to grow the team and then the product, whatever the product or services is, it has some traction so you're really betting on that in the later stages and you're betting on the distribution of how they're going to grow their footprint.
1: So as you assess the team uh, and whether or not you think the team is worth the bet, how do you how do you do that? What does that look like beyond their pitch or what do you look for in their pitch or you know do you get to know them outside of just that that pitch?
0: A hundred percent. I I can tell within a 30-minute conversation whether I want to work with an entrepreneur or not. It's very Mm. easy for me now. It's so funny. I've been doing this for 21 years and I feel like it gets easier and easier. It was Mm. very hard for me in the early days because I was so impressionable. I believed every word. Some people are just really good at selling.
1: And I will tell you. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking for the you know, for the early investor, oh. you know, the first second time they do this. And I mean, you know, you can be schmoozed by somebody. I have
0: been hoodwinked and duped by many an entrepreneur.
1: Okay. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it out there. Let's like put it
0: all out there because I learned the hard way, right? I I yeah. met on an entrepreneur who had the perfect sales pitch and was so polished and such a hustler and so hardworking and like just everything. And then it was just a house of cards. It was like You know, entrepreneur was too busy having yoga outings and focusing on you know spending tons of money as opposed to investing in building the right team and building the right business model that would last. Mm. And you know, so many entrepreneurs, if money is like a hole in your pocket, once you have it, you feel like you have to spend it. And so I've seen. I know that feeling. I know that feeling
1: very well. (laughs) I've seen so
0: many founders who are talented and smart and have tremendous potential just ruin their business and ruin their entrepreneurial experience by raising too much money and spending too much money too quickly. That I would say is the biggest problem. And I can mm. separate the spenders from the savers now in one conversation. I know who they are. And I can see it early on, the people who spend versus save. And then the, the personality of like the humility, all those things matter to me. I just like, I look at Kind of who I am as an entrepreneur and what I've built. And I've had four companies at the stage. I've sold two of them. I've had a lot of highs. I've had a lot of lows. I've had hard experiences and I've worked tremendously hard to have what I have today. And I feel like there's a whole class of entrepreneurs that just, you know, believe they have, you know, an ABC formula to become rich very quickly. And they believe that ho- hard work is not part of the equation. And for me, hard work has always been part of the equation. So we're just not aligned on that. Um, they're mm-hmm. like, well, I'm going to raise money and I'm going to hire all these people from these different companies and they're going to build out this business and I'm going to be on vacation for six weeks a year. And I was like, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's not being a CEO. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's being a CEO for you. It's not for me. So, you know, I lead by example. I am incredibly hardworking. I feel very strongly that you should have tremendous passion for what you do and people come in all shapes and sizes and beings. Not, No one should be exactly like you in your organization. In fact, hiring diverse teams is actually a huge advantage. Hiring people who think differently, act differently, behave differently, bring different perspectives to the table and actually end up having the best result and outcome for the business. So I'm big on diverse teams. No one looks like me and acts like me and has my background or my educational pedigree or anything like that. Everyone is very different at my company and I really like that. A lot of founders fall into this pattern of like attracts like. They raise money and they hire a whole team of people that look just like them. And that's when they Mm -hmm. fail. Mm
1: -hmm. So if you were talking to um, not an entrepreneur, but somebody who might be just thinking about investing in entrepreneurs, what would you say are the kind of two or three must- ask questions of those entrepreneurs to really get beneath what they're trying to pitch you?
0: I think understanding their passion for the business. you know Is there a large market opportunity that you have to do the diligence on before you even look at the entrepreneur? Is this entrepreneur uniquely positioned to solve that problem and attack that opportunity? Is this entrepreneur able to attract talent? If they can sell you, they can sell future employees. If they can't sell you, they can't. And then, you know, part of that is confidence. I say this with, you know, some sort of measurement around it. You don't need to be arrogant. You don't need to be full of yourself, but you need to have confidence. So many people pitch me and they're overly confident and I can tell it's an empty suit. And many people pitch me and they're underconfident. And when I can't have confidence in you because you're not selling yourself properly, then I can't have confidence that you're going to sell everyone else around you. And so Mm. the right amount of confidence is critical for being a successful entrepreneur. I think that raw intelligence, I don't need to see that, you know, you went to Harvard and you went to here and there. Like, that's not what I'm looking for. That was, you know, my journey. And that's because, you know, I'm into education and that's just a different way to go. But I feel strongly that raw intelligence is super important. Is this person a problem solver? Those are, that's how you figure out a good entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship is literally solving problems every single day. What do you do every Mm -hmm. single day? You're putting out fires every single day as a CEO. So are you a good problem solver? Can you think on your feet? You can tell that when you ask people curveball questions, you know how they react and how they act and whether they're overly confident and they tell you information that is completely false. Or they say, hey, listen, you know what? That's a question I'm not ready to answer right now. Let me think on that and get back to you. Or let me look into it and get back to you. I appreciate that response. I appreciate the honesty and integrity that comes along with admitting that you don't know everything and that you're going to think about it and get back to me as opposed to faking your way through an answer. So I can tell very quickly whether I want to back someone or not. And then I would say the last piece, which is critical for having a successful relationship within the entrepreneur-investor relationship is built on trust And it's really also built on coachability. So many entrepreneurs I meet are super strong. They're very capable. They can do it well. They could do it better if they had the right investors around them and the right mentors and advisors. But the fact that they can't take coaching advice, you know, it just, it nips the whole situation in the bud.
1: Mm. No, if we can, you know, kind of do a 180. And from the other perspective, how do you choose the money you're going to accept for your businesses?
0: Um, very, very carefully is the answer to that. So, in my career, having launched and built four companies, most recently now I'm running uh, Wander Beauty, which focuses on clean beauty essentials for wherever you wander. And I love beauty. I, when I first started out, took angel money. I took angel money from angels I had worked with before. People I trust, people I know, people who had backed me in my prior ventures. Um, I knew that they were going to be relatively hands off. I, I, you know, I was very strategic about bringing in this angel money. I could have just taken money from anybody at that point. I had sold two companies and I, you know, had a track record and could have reached out to the market and, um, focused on, uh, you know, taking money that was easy for me. And I did the exact opposite. I I took money that really made sense for me, which I think is a better path. So I took money from a former CFO because I always like having someone on the financial side to review my financials, to give me perspective. I obviously am trained on the financial side. I worked in investment banking, worked in private equity. I have an MBA. That doesn't matter. That that means I don't know, I don't know everything. And so Mm -hmm. surround yourself with people who know more than you and can open doors and help you see things in a different way. So I took angel money from a CFO. I took angel money from a serial entrepreneur. I took angel money strategically from people that I thought would add value to my business. I chose them very carefully. I turned a lot of people down in that angel round. I then took a series A investment um, in April 2017. DGNL led that round for me. The person who came on my board I had known since my days at Goldman Sachs, my first job out of college. And that was a very, you know, measured decision. I had other offers from other investment funds. I cho- chose to work with someone I knew. I chose to work with someone I trusted implicitly with my life and that had really amazing perspective. I chose to work with someone who had worked at L'Oreal and had beauty industry experience that I didn't have. So every decision I've made, I've made for a reason. I've brought investors into the company because I think they can make the pie bigger for me, make the opportunity larger, and ultimately help me make the company successful. It was never about taking the highest valuation. It was never about taking the best pedigreed name. I had you know, angel investment offers from huge angels I would love to put in press release. And I didn't think they were going to add any value to my business. And so I didn't take their money. And that was my choice. You know, I believe that you should look at investors like a marriage without divorce. You are literally in bed with them all the way through building this company until you sell.
1: And Mm -hmm. so be ready for that. Have you ever gotten it wrong?
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I have. (laughs) And listen, live and learn. In my last company, I had some investors that, you know, asked me a hundred questions and asked me every little thing. And question my decision-making and like questioned a lot of stuff. Listen, questioning makes me rethink things and be stronger and have to defend my position, which I think is a good thing to do as a CEO. You should have justification for the path that you choose. But I really feel like you also don't want to be sidetracked by managing investors. As a CEO, your job is to build a business. If you spend all your time managing investors, you're not building a business. So... Mm -hmm. Bring investors into the fold that are helpful and you have a network of people that you can ask questions to, but are not meddling in the day-to-day because then you yeah. will never be able to run the day-to-day effectively.
1: Yeah. I want to come on to, to wonder um, for lots of reasons, partly because I can't believe this didn't exist when I was um, you know, traveling 200,000 uh, air miles a year. Um, but before I do, I just have one more question on the investing front. We we'll all be aware of the just astonishing difference uh, between men who are seeking, um, you know, VC funding and women who are seeking money. I think it's something like, I don't know, less than 2% of... Mm-hmm. And uh, women like of the the color, it's actually 0.4%. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. So, you know, anyway, you know, let's not spend time diagnosing the problem because I think that's that's well understood and, and discussed elsewhere. But I'm just wondering in for, you know, in your Perspective and in your experience, for the things that are in the control of the women seeking money, what can they do to optimize their chances of success?
0: They need to present just like men present. They need to walk in a room and have confidence. They can't second guess themselves because otherwise the investors are going to second guess them. So that's like number one. Number two is they need to present data and information that can convince anyone who's out of the industry to believe in and understand their concept and their idea. And how they present that information actually shows the investor how they think and it actually serves a dual purpose. So, you know, I you know, I think about buying a new TV or buying a new car, what do you do? You read ratings and reviews and consumer reports, right? Like you you read and get educated about what other people think about this idea. You have some sort of you know, recommendation, sometimes getting recommended by friends. So number one, getting in, getting an investor who's an amazing investor, getting to them via a friendly connection, someone, an entrepreneur they've backed before, an investor that they've invested with before, you have to build a network. So build the network and you'll get in with a warm introduction, which lends credibility to you and sets you out a step ahead. Number two, when you go in that pitch, show me the data. If I don't understand your business area, I'm not an expert in your sector or space. And that often happens for women, right? A lot of females create businesses that are catered to women. And women are the ultimate consumers. So when they're sitting in a pitch meeting with a man who actually isn't planning on ever consuming this product or service and doesn't relate to it in any way, you need to make an objective case so that they can understand it. And so too many women rely so deeply on their intuition and like, of course, there's a market for this. And I buy it and my friends buy it. And like, show me the data. No one can argue with data. You can build influence and a position of strength by showing people actual research and data. And anyone, male, female, transgender, unidentified gender, anyone can understand data and metrics. And so make the case less subjective and more objective. Come in the room with confidence, um, network to build warm introductions, and then really put real hard, cold facts and data in front of an investor and make the decision objective, not subjective.
1: Mm. Okay. That's great advice okay let's talk wanderer uh, as I mentioned there was a time in my life in a previous life um, when I was traveling I mean I was traveling so much. I would had like platinum in every airline I <laughs> am was well i mean I'm jealous i I look back fondly now on those memories because um because we've been in lockdown so long but um but it was also exhausting it was you know really exhausting but i did I did become just an expert packer. I could go up to six weeks with just a carry on. Um, and I have to say, I mean, you identified the problem. I identified the problem too, but I didn't do anything about it. Um, which one of the hardest things was how you bring your beauty, skincare and hair care with you. And it, I think to people who haven't had this experience, that might sound a little bit I don't know what the word is like, trite, but it's it's an actual problem because an you don't have pain that, point. It's it really is. It really is a pain point, point. and so you end up making a lot of compromises, and you know, um, and frankly, just not looking as good as as you would prefer to look. And you've already got um, jet lag not on your side. So, tell me about how you fell in love with this problem and decided to solve it. So,
0: listen. There's a lot of beauty happening beyond the bathroom, and by the way, we trademarked that beauty beyond the bathroom. There's a lot of beauty where you live, work, and play. There's like, everyone has this conception that women get up in the morning, they get ready in the bathroom, and then they never touch a beauty product for the rest of the day. Absolutely untrue. Anyone had chapped lips? You know, I'm like reapplying lip balm um, four times a day. And I've got mm-hmm. Hashimoto's disease and my face is dried out and as dry as a desert.
1: I have Hashimoto's. That's the that's the autoimmune condition I have as well. Yeah. So you feel yeah. my pain. And yeah, I do. and try losing
0: a lot of hair too. So then let's add yeah. that to the mix. So mm-hmm. the reality is women today are more time starved, busy, and active than they've ever been before. Lockdown aside, we're still we're still busy. We're still time starved. Mm-hmm. We're now managing a lot of household stuff that we didn't manage before. We're not traveling as much, yes, but we're still time-starved, busy, and we're still active. And I can't sit in one place for more than five minutes unless I'm literally on a you know video call. Um, because I'm multitasking. I'm trying to make my kids lunch while they're having Zoom school, while I'm doing a conference call. I'm doing laundry while I'm doing a conference call. Like we're all living our lives in motion. And there was mm-hmm. no beauty brand that was actually helping these women and creating what we call beauty in motion. And so Wander Beauty really capitalized on that idea. I was living my life like this. My co-founder was living her life like this. Time starved, on the go, Makeup happening in the back of an Uber, happening in the car, you know, skincare happening at the gym um, after a workout, and hair care happening sometimes at our desk at work or not at all. You know, my hair mm-hmm. is bedhead. You know, many days of the week, and so the reality is that we needed a brand. We needed a brand with ingredients that we could trust. Clean beauty. Obviously, you have the privilege of being living in Europe and having clean beauty be table stakes in America, such is not the case. Um, Mm. You know, we ban over a thousand ingredients um, from our formulations. And so this idea of clean beauty essentials that you reach for every single day across skincare, hair care, body care, makeup um, for wherever you wander. And wherever that may be, whether it's from the bedroom to the kitchen to the laundry room, or it's from desk to dinner, or if it's travel, whatever it may be, you know, Wander Beauty is giving you clean beauty essentials wherever you wander, and things that you can trust and use cross-category, and creating one destination, WanderBeauty.com, where you can buy all of this, um, mobilely in a minute and thirty seconds using Apple Pay, and so it wasn't just you know, creating innovative multitaskers, creating multifunctional products that serve these time-starved busy women with great ingredients that work with your skin, not against it, and creating, you know, travel-friendly packaging that you could take anywhere. Not travel-sized, but Um, Mm travel-friendly. It was also building the technology experience with that. It had to be a 360 thing. We had to create clean beauty that was going to really drive results, minimum effort, maximum results, We had to create packaging that was going to go with you everywhere. A lot of tubes, a lot of droppers, sanitary skincare. We were never the brand that was creating cream in a jar. Everybody does that. Why would you want to put your hands with all the oil, dirt, bacteria, sebum, and nasty things that your fingers have touched, including your keyboard, and put that on your face? You just don't. So our skincare is pumps and droppers. Like We were thinking through every aspect of this busy woman's life and trying to create product and formulas to make her life streamline her beauty routine, make her life easier, and then also create a technology experience alongside that to make it really simple and easy.
1: Mm. One of the things I really appreciated about when I was uh, researching Wonder was the fact that you have products that do multiple different things, and there is a lack of proliferation of, you know, you need to put this cream and then you need to put this primer and then you need to put a second primer and then you need to put your foundation. And that's something that I've seen. I'm 40 now. And I remember when I was, um, you know, first a teenager and, you know, wearing makeup and I thought it was really fun. You know, you like, you had foundation and eyeshadow and mascara and eyeliner and lipstick. And that was it. <laughs> you know, like that was, it. It was like, like five products. Plus, uh, fewer, better.
0: I really, yes. really believe in fewer better. I'm so strongly a believer in fewer better in my wardrobe, in my kitchen, in my cleaning mm. products, in my beauty products. Like invest in a few things and fewer better. Like everything we create at Wander Beauty is multifunctional. So you're saving mm. time, you're saving space, and you're saving money because you're not buying four things. We make an on yeah. the globe, blush and illuminator. Okay. There's a hero product. One the first thing we launched with. It's a lip and cheek formulation on one side. You can use it on lips. You can use it on cheeks. You can use it on um, the other side, the highlighter, illuminator, as cream eyeshadow, as, as highlighter on your high points of your face, on your legs, on your bodies, on your shoulders. There's just so much flexibility and ability to really like multitask with your beauty. So you don't need to buy a lipstick, a blush, a cream eyeshadow, a highlighter, Four products in your beauty bag I've just eliminated by giving you one thing, and so streamlining mm-hmm. your beauty routine and offering women their time more time back in your life because you're streamlining your beauty routine that's your most precious commodity who doesn't want that
1: yeah have you read it's an old book now, but have you read by any chance the beauty myth by naomi Wolf I haven't, but I should um yeah I mean it was one of those books I read in college and it was just. I mean, you know how you there's like five books in your life that have like absolutely Ooh. changed your life. That's That was one of mine. And I don't remember all the detail now because it was so long ago. But the one of the concepts that really stuck with me was beauty as a third shift of work. And everything of keeping up with your parents, a third shift of work that, you know, now women, you know, well, again, it's an old book, but you have your professional work. And then you have all the work you have to do in the home still, that's yep. still not totally shared. And then you also have maintaining your beauty in everything that means. And so anything, I think, like you said, that can give women back their time while also um, paying respect to the fact that, you know, women do want to keep, you know, look a certain way and that, that can also be empowering. I think it's, you know, I mean, it's a feminist issue, really. Um, and so I think, I think it's quite transformational. It's a no-brainer. It's like,
0: it's a total no-brainer. It's like, why wouldn't I want to have more time? Like I'm time starved every single day. I'm always Mm -hmm. looking for more hours in the day. I'm making breakfast at 11 p.m. at night so that my husband, when I'm working and I'm on a podcast with you and my kids have their breakfast break from school, (laughs) I make literally, I make a French toast uh, and like a casserole dish. And I'm like, all you have to do is put this in the oven. This is idiot proof. You can handle this. (laughs) <laughs> As a, and he's busy working. He doesn't have time to sit and make eggs and French toast. I make everything at night. He sticks it in the oven. How do you be efficient in your life? We're all looking for hacks. Yeah. So why not, you know, take some time from your beauty routine?
1: So, listen, all of these products that, have, that, that didn't even exist 20 years ago and now are all of a sudden, you know, absolutely essential. We couldn't possibly live without two primers. And I mean, eyelid primer. I, anyway, uh, you know, all the things that we're, we supposedly need. That's how larger beauty companies in particular have maintained growth. So, you know, you have a beauty company, you obviously are in it to make profit. You're Mm -hmm. in it to make profit for yourself and your investors. How do you resist the temptation to be pulled in that direction as well?
0: I just don't believe in it. I I fundamentally don't believe that I, you know, every beauty company, you're 100% right, believes more is more. They're selling the consumer that you need 15 steps to do your makeup, you need 10 steps to do your skin and you need another 10 steps to do your hair. And I don't believe it because I don't live like that. I live in a way where I got ready for this podcast and thought it was video, but I'm happy to be on audio with you. <laughs> and in literally three minutes, my face was done. And you know, it should not take me more than three minutes. I took a yeah. little bit of Glowhead Illuminating Oil to give that radiant dewy finish, put a little touch of our foundation in there because I didn't want a lot of coverage, mixed it together, put it on a brush on my face, put a little lip and cheek on, a mascara on, I was done. And you know, it's mm. it can be very simple and easy and every single step and every formulation that you have touch your lips, touch your lashes, touch your hair, touch your face can be enriched with global skin loving ingredients which are going to improve and help the con- the condition of your lashes, your lips, your skin, your hair. Why not work with them and and create treatment options? Every single thing we create has treatment elements. So uh, historically, makeup is known to ruin your skin. Why can't it mm. actually make your skin better? And so mm-hmm. really thinking through that problem is something that we have taken a unique positioning around. And and I believe that if you make less things and create less choice, it makes it very easy for people to make decisions, as evidenced by our very high e-commerce conversion rates on our site. So, you know, we've taken a very contrarian different approach. And I stand by it because that's how I live my life. Mm.
1: So, what's your what's your plan uh, with Wonder Beauty? Are you hoping to sell it? Are you hoping to to run it forever? My plan is to grow and build this business.
0: I I really I love it. I'm wildly passionate about it. I am enjoying every day of it. It is not without its challenges. Um, I recently brought a president into our company, which I think has been game changing for me. It allows me to spend more time thinking about the vision. Um, and crafting destiny and investing in the product development area, which is something I'm wildly passionate about. Um, And then, you know, to take a little bit of time away from the kind of day-to-day management, which I feel like I really needed. And I'm just Mm -hmm. excited about where we are. And now all I'm focused on is putting my head down and growing and building. Our skincare business is growing dramatically. Our skin formulations are really special. We formulate them um, with chemists in Korea and we really have an authentic point of view on uh, on why they're uh, amazing for you and also incredible multitaskers. So my I have my marching orders. I'm going to grow this business. I'm going to build our skin business. I'm going to build our international footprint. We're starting to really grow a lot overseas um, and really capitalize on that. So I know what I have to do and I'm just going to keep doing it. Amazing.
1: So I'd like to switch gears now. I don't know if... Um if you have, will have heard of our Tilly round. Um, but this is where it's sort of our, our quick fire round, but actually sure. it's like quick ish fire. We say okay, it can great. Go, you know, fast or slow. Let's anyway, do it. So what's one lesson you've learned the hard way?
0: Hire slowly, fire quickly. I learned it very hard. Mm-hmm. I believe that you should hire very slowly. Look for the right candidate. Don't just fill when, when the, you know The bus is moving forward. The wheels are falling off. It's very easy to pick the first person that's available to you and hire them and fill in the gap and keep mm-hmm. the bus running. And that's the wrong answer. Hire very slowly. Make sure you're looking at a wide diversity of candidates. Make sure you're looking out at people outside of your industry who can bring perspective that you don't see typically. Um, and when someone is not working out in your organization, cut cut the cord. Period. The end. I have been guilty of this where I have Figured that things will work themselves out, they don't work themselves out. If there's a problem, you need to resolve the problem. Either you can fix it together or you decide to move on. And also one bad apple really does ruin the bunch. So hire slowly, Mm. fire quickly. What's something
1: women don't talk enough about? Money.
0: We are all too shy to talk about money. Why? My husband goes on guys' dinners and he trades investment ideas with all of his friends. They're Mm -hmm. multiplying and creating more and more wealth um, the, the, um, wealth gap between men and women, the divide is getting bigger. Why? Because women are too shy to talk about money. Why aren't we, you know, if we could talk about money as much as we'd like to talk about our kids and our careers and our families and our mother-in-laws, um, Hmm. then we could actually, you know, narrow the wealth gap between
1: men and women. Hmm. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about?
0: That working hard is everything. I mean, I grew up in this culture of investment banking where you just worked really hard, you pushed yourself, you were exhausted, you wore no sleep as a badge of honor. And mm-hmm. you know, I think Gen Z and millennials have it right. Work doesn't define your whole life. You need to take time out to take care of yourself. When you take care of yourself, when you rest, when you relax, when you do things outside of work, um, they make you a better CEO. A better mother, a better wife, a better partner. And I feel like I've totally changed my viewpoint on this. Hard work is important, but sometimes it's about working smarter, not working harder.
1: Mm. So what does is, what is self-care look like for you now?
0: I meditate twice a day. I've been doing it since the seventh grade. I've never compromised on that. Um, I exercise. I am not great at exercise, to be honest with you. I'm not great at going to the gym and getting my heart rate up. I don't have time to go to the gym. I'm actually nervous to go to the gym because of COVID. They book it out Mm. for one person at a time, but still that freaks me out. Um, So I just do like yoga at home at night to de-stress. I used to swim a lot. Now, right now, I'm not really swimming in 30 degree Manhattan weather. Um, (laughs) But I love to swim. And I read, that's like time I take for myself. I'm really, I'm reading a book right now called How to Lead. I'm actually really enjoying it. I just finished gin at... Mm. In's book, Blowing My way to the Top. So I, I love mm-hmm. to like take time out to do things outside of work that I need for myself. Um, self-care mm-hmm. for me also is cooking when I'm actually not required to cook. If I'm not actually required to put a meal, like cooking becomes a labor when you feel like you have to put meals on the table for your family. I love to cook when I'm actually creating something new and different that I actually want to eat for myself. That's my, that's my self-care.
1: Yeah. What unearned privilege or unfair advantage has been most instrumental to where you are now in your life?
0: You know, I didn't, you know, my parents didn't grow up in this country and I don't, you know, and I'm not white. So I I don't have any sort of, you know, racial privilege. Um, I, you know, my parents didn't go to Ivy League schools. They didn't work in finance. They did not create a world of advantage and privilege and open doors and networking with friends to get me a job. Like I had none of that, right? So I just, I didn't, I don't even know what that is because I've never had it. Uh, One thing I will Mm -hmm. say that was a privilege for me, which I really am very, very grateful for. When I look around at um, so many people graduating college today and making decisions about their education, people are getting priced out of an education. People are not Mm -hmm. going to college because they don't want to walk out of college with a bunch of debt. People are not going to grad school because they don't want to walk out of grad school with a mountain of debt. And so the privilege that I had is that my father worked very hard and he paid for my undergraduate education for me to go to Cornell. And I graduated Cornell debt-free. And to me, that was an incredible advantage because I was allowed to make career decisions around what career was right for me, not career decisions because I was saddled by a ton of debt and I had to make the most amount of money to pay off as much debt as quickly as possible.
1: I'm very grateful
0: that he paid for my education.
1: I think a lot of people can resonate with that. I mean, debt is slavery and one of, you know, having this, uh, you know, I grew up in the States and uh, lived uh, in New York for many years of my adult life, but have spent most of my adult life in, um, in Europe and mostly in the UK, but also in France and Belgium. And, Obviously, I didn't have the experience of of doing my undergrad or my postgrad, um, you know, my business school here. But all of my all of my cohort did right, uh, like all of my friends here, and they they did in the UK. You know, higher education is not free, but it's like you know they graduated with like I don't know eight thousand pounds of debt. <laughs> you know, is something like you know, it's like come $11, to America, ex- but,
0: experience our yeah. amazing educational system that is completely failing people every single day. I mean, it just, you know, and this is why, listen, this to me, I'm so passionate about it. And I feel so that it is so wrong. One of the first things I did after I graduated business school, um, is that I created a scholarship at Harvard because I said that, you know, I was able to work hard. I paid for my own graduate education. I worked, I, you know, I saved every dollar I had. I owned four pairs of shoes. Like I'm not saying anyone should make these decisions. I'm saying I made these decisions because I wanted to get my master's. And I did not want to ask my parents for money. I also did not want to take debt. And so Mm -hmm. I was a savvy investor. I invested the money that I had. I was very careful about my expenses and I paid for my graduate school education. And when I graduated, I created a scholarship years later when I had the ability, financial ability to do so, so that people who... Um, wanted to come and got acceptance to Harvard Business School could actually go there without having to worry about paying their tuition for a year. And, you know, I get yeah. these incredible letters from people every year saying that, you know, thank you so much. I would not have actually chosen to come here and had this education if I didn't have your scholarship to help make this a reality for me. And so I feel that's a, that's how you pay it forward.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's really powerful. I mean, the other thing that I, I, Think that people who haven't lived outside of the states have a hard time comprehending is how much freedom, not worrying about losing your health insurance gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and of course we have our problems. You know, there's problems in Europe, and you know, all different. And there's no there's no perfect system, but. I have, you know, I have personally made choices to, to leave a role, to innovate, to start something new that I don't, not sure I would have, you know, the calculus would have been so different because the risk, you know, the risk calculation is so much higher. Well, if I do that and I lose my health insurance, I've got to pay like thousand dollars a month of my own insurance. You know, it's, it's, it's a different calculation. You're yeah. absolutely correct. And decisions should be made based on
0: your aptitude, your desire, your passion for an industry, for a job, for a career, for a role, I just feel like financial decisions, like people who take jobs because of the best salary, it's never the right answer. You know, it's Mm. like people who take a a term sheet from an investor who gives them the highest valuation. To me, it's always about the people, the experience. What am I going to learn from this? How am I going to grow? I have to weigh in those factors instead of money.
1: Yeah. What are you still insecure about? Oh God, my,
0: my crooked bottom teeth. They drive me crazy. <laughs> I, and you know, like I really, I feel like every time I'm on camera or anytime I'm on my Instagram, like I just see those crooked bottom teeth and I say, it's time for Invisalign. So really, it's time for Invisalign. I'm getting Invisalign.
1: I was going to say, I mean, I've never noticed them, but if they bother you, like that's a fixable
0: fixable thing. I'm just doing it. I decided (laughs) I'm doing it. First, I was like, this is vain. I'm in my 40s. Do I need Invisalign? And I was like, you know what? I need Invisalign. I'm just doing it. Yeah. Do things that make you feel good.
1: Everybody's a little bit vain. Yeah, Yeah. no judgment. Do things that make you feel more confident. Absolutely. When do you feel you're most powerful?
0: This is an interesting question because I don't desire power. Maybe Mm. I'm just a different person. I don't have a desire to feel powerful. I don't want to feel powerful. I am a collaborator. I am a team player. I learned that very early in my career. It was actually drilled in my head, my first job out of college. At Goldman Sachs, I said, there's no I in Goldman Sachs. And that stuck with me for the rest of my life. Mm. I realized that we were as strong as the weakest link of our team. And that I like to collaborate and work with people and learn and grow with them, alongside them. I don't want to have power over people. I don't want to have command over people. So Mm. that's just who I am. And I own that. At Wander Beauty, there's no I in Wander Beauty. How old are you now, Divya? I'm
1: 44. 44. If you could go back and tell your 24-year-old self anything, what would it be?
0: Oh God, don't take yourself so seriously. I just, you know, (laughs) I was so serious. You know, I was that person who was like, I have to get A's. I have to get A's. I have to be like top of my class. I have to work so hard. I went to Goldman. I was like, I have to be top four. Like I was so obsessive over performance. I wish I just enjoyed my life a little more, to be honest with you. I was just trying to achieve. I was in this big achiever mode and I was like, I have to Mm. achieve. I have to achieve. I have to achieve. Listen, Achieving helped me you know, get into the schools that I got into. It helped me create the networks that I created at those institutions. I think I started becoming a more relaxed person after business school. I was kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, I've done a lot of great things in my life. I've checked a lot of boxes. Now let's like, go live life for me. I took a lot mm-hmm. of risks after that. As an entrepreneur, I've been a tremendous risk taker. I don't recommend that for people, but I think I came into my own later in my life.
1: Mm. Do you know, I had a really similar experience and I was, um, at a Columbia business school event, you know, as an alum helping them, um, uh, recruit or just talking to people who are interested in going. And I got the question from somebody in the audience was like, you know, what, what did you get out of business school? And I said, you know, look, I went to make a career change and that's exactly what I did, but actually what it gave me was freedom. And, I real. I also realized I was so much more willing to take risks. And I don't know if it was about, you know, partly what I learned and partly the brand that I had behind me, but also yeah. just you know being in a community of people who were, you know, doing really exciting things and and taking their own risks and failing sometimes and being just fine after that failure, right? And you realize, oh, you know, I can I can do that too. I was really that was really really ba- valuable for me. And I know that business school isn't the right, you know. Path for everybody, but I think finding it was those, liberating for you. It was and liberating for me. for me. Yeah, exactly. And I think for whatever whatever route might give somebody enough security to have that liberation, I really encourage them to take it um, because you never know what your life can. You know, once you have that freedom, you you just try so many different things. It's a much richer life now. Yep. So if we were um, having this conversation twenty years from now. And I asked you the same question. What would you say if you could tell your 44-year-old self anything? What do you think your 64-year-old self would say? The same thing. Don't take yourself so seriously and relax. (laughs) I think I'm
0: going to like, you know, just, I don't know, enjoy. And like COVID has taught me a lot. This has been altered my framework of life and work. It really has. I've realized that I can be highly efficient and work at home and connect and meet people Digitally, and not have to physically be running around like a crazy person and traveling all those hours I spent on airplanes and all those hours I spent traveling away from my family and not engaged with them in a meaningful way. Listen, I've had more family time than this COVID time than I've had in my entire life. It's Mm. a blessing in many ways. Um, I'm ready to get back to work. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I and I love my family and I think this has been fantastic. So I feel very strongly that I, um, that I've changed my priorities. And I think that I ever, it's an ever changing shift around work and life and how to make that all work. I spent the early years in my career, work, 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 work. And I didn't enjoy my life. And I was so busy achieving. And then I realized later on as a CEO, especially with Wander that like, you don't need to work all the time. You don't need to work seven days a week. You don't need to be on email at all hours. And I, and I never was like that with my team. It was my own, own personal choice. I actually don't send emails. I send emails and I schedule them during business hours. So I don't harass people oh, at night gross. and on weekends when I'm working personally, which is what I need to do for myself. So, um... Gosh,
1: so that, that I, is such
0: a good tip. Yeah, I feel like it's really, yeah. it's, it's life-changing. You can choose a path for yourself, but that should not be the path you choose for others. You need to respect their boundaries and also their time off work. And they will be better at work when they have time to decompress. And so uh, decompressing for me sometimes is catching up on stuff. So I um, I really, I feel like as I get older and more mature, I realize that there's, there's a whole life out there besides just your career and investing. And like, imagine this, I'm a CEO of a business full-time that's global. I have... A, an investment fund. I'm doing deals all the time. I'm you know investing in other entrepreneurs. I'm working with them consistently, advising, helping, helping them grow, build, and and sell all of those different pieces. Um, and now I really want to go back and learn. I, I want to go back to the early years of my life, like where I was learning so much, and I went to culinary school, like. I have like another degree I want to potentially get. Like I'm crazy. I don't know why I need to go back to school, but I want to. I want to teach more. There's a lot of stuff that I want to do. And so the next phase of my life is gonna look like that.
1: Okay, last question. What are you really fucking good at? Oh
0: God. I'm really good at building influence and seeing all sides of an argument. Early in my career, I was horrible at it. I was exactly what I explained to you. I was achieving, I was growing, I was checking the boxes and I wanted to win. I was in this very you know, boxed in framework where it was like you had to be on the top and you had to win. And right now I'm the exact opposite. I'm a good consensus builder. That's really what I'm good at. I'm good at rallying people around seeing many different sides of an argument, understanding different perspectives. And ultimately I've realized I don't want to win. I just, I've learned that what I want is to understand others and to seek to be understood. Hmm.
1: Thank you so much for your time. This I think is that's amazing. the I, I loved it. it. <laughs> and, oh, I really, it was really a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to learn more about you, about Wander Beauty, about concept to co where should they go?
0: So wanderbeauty.com for all your clean beauty essentials. I'm, um, Wander Beauties on Instagram at Wander, W A N D E R underscore beauty. So follow along, please, in our journey. Um, and if you want to talk to me directly, follow or, you know, DM me for any questions, I'm at D Gugnani, G U G N A N I. Um, and I do answer all my DMs and I do connect with, um, uh, people all the time over any issues, life, home, work, investing. Um, and my investment site is concept 2
1: Amazing. We'll also put your um, your social handles and contacts in our show notes for anybody who wants to learn more. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help us reach incredible women to introduce you to on the show. While you're at it, check out the show notes for more info on our guests and to find out how to reach us on all the socials. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you here again next week.
0: Like anybody, I would like to live...